COVID issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. Regular listeners of the podcast will know that I am a big advocate for sport being something that we can all take some enjoyment from. So I was absolutely delighted to chat to Anna Tashinsky this week, QI Elf, host of the No Such Thing as a Fish podcast, fellow Charlton Athletic supporter and co-author of the new book Everything to Play for, The QI Book of Sports. It's a fascinating and hilarious look at the history of sport with some excellent trivia in it which Anna wrote in part to try and break down the mystery around sport and the divisiveness of it. We chatted about making sport more interesting to a wider audience, funny things that we didn't know about sport, novel ways of cheating in the modern pentathlon and of course chart on athletic. I absolutely loved Anna, I love chatting to her and I hope that you'll enjoy this chat too. I'm joined by Anna Tashinsky, QI Elf and co-author of Everything to Play For, the QI book of sports. Anna, I'm delighted to welcome another QI Elf to the podcast. We're buddies with QI alumnus, is that the right word? Anne Miller. Could you please, to start off with, tell us a little bit about the book? Because there's basically like four books written by women about sport and one of them's by me. So like, <laughs> <laughs> so for you, obviously, as someone who loves sport, I guess to have the kind of like QI heft behind it, like, do you think that was sort of quite, quite useful? Yes. So it's the QI take, I guess, the QI elf take on sport, which basically means it's all the really interesting stuff that we hope even really big sports fans won't know about it. And the reason... I really wanted to write this book and I know James did as well is that we both love sport and I feel like sport is quite divisive and if you don't consider yourself a sports fan then it can be quite excluding whereas I very strongly believe that literally every human alive loves sport really because it's got everything you could want it has all of humanity in it uh, whether you want like comedy stories whether you want you know real competitiveness the victories the losses the plot lines and people are just put off it by kind of how in-groupy it seems so I really wanted to write a book that would appeal to anyone and all the facts in it would be interesting regardless of whether you know anything about sport or think you like it and which if you're the biggest sports nut out there you wouldn't know the vast majority of stuff And so we sort of compiled everything we had, had an endless document of interesting facts about sport and started writing. It was really good fun. I think what you said is absolutely right. And that's what I love about sport as well, is that you see all of humanity in Mm -hmm. it for better or worse. I, I feel like everyone should be able to relate to something if it's presented in the right way. But we kind of do it the wrong way, I think, as like journalists, people are sort of like, this is football. And because it is only football, this is football. And if you don't understand it, that's sort of your problem. And we're not going to bother to try and make it interesting to you. What do you think about that? I think it's exactly that. And like being in any in-group, it is really nice when you're in it. And it's such a fun, it's a fun bond to have universally. I mean, I went, when I started the book, I asked a bunch of my friends who are fans of sport why they like sport and the answers were so fascinating and I'd also say you know anyone who thinks they don't love sport ask someone you know who's a sports lover why they like it and it'll be a more intelligent incisive response than you expected you know it's everything from people who just love the discipline of what you can achieve within the rules to people who see it as a way of connecting to other people and 
So I think if you are in that in-group, it is a great way of connecting. I've got a very good friend who always lives in a different country every sort of month of the year, practically. And he says the way he makes friends is he just goes up to someone and just sort of says in whatever language you can cobble together do you play football or he finds people playing football somewhere Mm. and joins them and you can get this connection that sort of overrides everything else or differences between you but yeah I agree if you're not in that world the way people talk about it it's a bit like a badge of pride I think it doesn't help that I think quite a lot of men sorry to generalize men feel like they should be really into it so we're always trying to sound like they maybe know a bit more than they do so there's this slightly competitive thing so they don't want to welcome you know people who know nothing because they're they're already trying to seem like they're experts as it is and struggling away so yeah and it's, there's obviously a big male macho exclusiveness to it which is crazy how few women do write books about sport i really found that a problem because i really wanted to read almost equally sources by men and women for the book. And it's, as you can imagine, unfathomably difficult to do that. Because I don't know, women aren't just, it's just not culturally, socially a thing that they're encouraged to do as much. Although that's obviously changing massively. Yeah, not not quickly enough in my opinion. But yeah, absolutely. I had this argument quite a lot with my boyfriend during the Women's World Cup. He was like, why are they always trying to get men to like women's football? Why don't they try and get women to like women's football? And I was like, well, I think, you know, that is happening with younger people. But a lot of women of my generation, like I would say I'm definitely in the minority of women in my peer group who likes sport and football. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I just think it's, yeah, you're right that we've just never been socialised to be interested in it. But also it is presented in this way that there's like some kind of like arbitrary science behind it. One of the reasons I love football is because it's so fucking funny. It's just funny. Like there's so yeah. much humour to be found yeah. in football. Right. I completely agree. Well, especially as you you and I are both sort of Charlton fans. And if you can't see the comedy in the sort of like tragic up and down merry-go-round that is their fate, then what is there? And I agree. And I think the ch- like when you go to a game, I think the chants are often really funny. Yes. And like self-conscious, I, I sometimes think that from the outside, people don't realise how self-consciously people sort of abuse the referee, for instance. I mean, the number of times you'll hear the crowd and you in the crowd would be like that's foul ref ref and then they mm. lead back to their mate and go no way was that a foul <laughs> you know everyone knows it's play acting really i think i also think it was really funny is like chance the way people why are they always sung in that weird voice like <laughs> like no one actually sounds like that when they open their mouth do they not like men don't sound like that either i've, I've yet to meet a man who actually sounds like that like whoa yay well, hello what do you want for breakfast yeah, exactly yeah. do you just want to say because unbelievably i have only just discovered that you are a and i quote long-suffering fan of charlton athletic <laughs> three points on the road last night <laughs> amazing how are you feeling from the giddy heights of 11th in league I'm... one I'm surprised I'm holding it together, really. It's been, um, well, it's been a classic chance season, hasn't it? Really just solid mediocrity. But I'm looking at things, look, looking up a lot, I think. Do you think? Do we think? Yeah, the new guy, don't know his name. Uh, he seems all right. The 20th uh, manager in four years. Yeah, tw- yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think Middleton? we like him. Is that his name? Have I made that up? Yes. No, no, what was he called? Ah. Uh... Appleton, Appleton. Appleton. 
yeah. Appleton, Michael Appleton. Yes, that's right. Um, I think he, because my brother's an avid Oxford fan and I think he used to manage Oxford a few years ago and kind of nailed it with them. So we've got high hopes and sort of can't get worse than the start of the season, I suppose. But I don't yeah. know. I'm always prepared for things to be um, to be worse with, with Tottenham Athletic. Tell me if you agree with this. Sorry, mm. this is, again, a tangent, but... um. The reason I support Charlton is because one of my best friends I made at uni uh, was and is an avid Charlton fan. And I asked him why he likes sport for this book. One of the things he said was, if I ever have kids, I'm going to force them to support a shit team because it teaches you something about humility and kind of laughing at yourself and not taking anything too seriously. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I hate, I went to school and I hated all those Arsenal fans and Chelsea fans. And being a Charlton fan teaches you to be a better person was his view. I mean, I agree completely. There's a, I write quite a lot in my book about how when I fell unexpectedly pregnant with my daughter, her dad is an Arsenal fan. And mm-hmm. I had always said that if I was going to support a good team, I'd support Arsenal because I felt that I could kind of square that because they used to be from Woolwich. So, mm-hmm. you know. Nice, yeah. And Thierry Henry, you know in the 90s and early thousands so you sure, know who wasn't who wasn't in love with that exactly yeah. so I always said that but after I had my daughter and her dad is an Arsenal fan and was sort of leaning quite heavily on the on the Arsenal vibes shall we say I found myself really quite against Arsenal <laughs> as a team yeah I think that's correct <laughs> and, and basically I think that Arsenal fans have no heart wow strong yeah Talk to me about that. And yet you've you've uh, the father of your child is one of them. We used to occasionally like send her passively aggressively to the other one in like a Charlton kit or an Arsenal kit and uh, yeah. <laughs> that's very good. She might grow up with a real identity crisis, but it's entirely possible uh, to be it's fair. Still part of but being a sports fan. I think that the way they treated Wenger was appalling. I like obviously yeah. he had stopped winning games for them and that was a problem, but like it made me really sad. I hated watching it play out. I just thought like oh the lack of respect you have for this man who's seen you through such good times and like maybe absolutely you know football is like a like a cyclical thing like Italy used to be really good as a team and then they all played until they were like 85 and retired at the same time and now they're not very good anymore because they don't have a great crop at the moment right managers come and go things happen look at us post Kerbishly We've never really recovered. Like, you know, look never at Manchester United from... post Fergie. I mean, they're having a hell of a time at the moment. Well, I would argue it's really not that bad. Have some perspective. But like, you know. I know. It's so funny how what a catastrophe is for Man United compared to anyone else. There's just, yeah, they're sort of below second to the league. But it's fun. And the rest of us all really enjoy their failures, bizarrely, I think, more than any other team. But that's what I love. It's the story arc, right? I love yeah. the story arc of a season. Like, obviously god rest his soul he's not dead but he's no he's no longer with us in the premier league jose Mourinho, always like absolutely cracking value for a story arc because it usually yeah. ends with him descending into madness and being fired but yeah yeah, yeah you're right yeah that's i think that's maybe part of it as well is that the drama and whether or not it's like confected um people really feel it and it's really entertaining and yeah the way people turn on each other it is awful how arsenal treated their manager but then of course you're like god it is only football and i am watching it almost like you know mm-hmm. watching vultures pick on a god that's horrible to compare him to the sort of corpse of a dead 
safari animal but hey um it's all it's part of the drama that is not good to do in real life because to make things melodramatic you know causes all sorts of unnecessary problems but you can do it when it comes to you know football or tennis or the olympics or here's a big question which sort of relates to what you're saying about you know you you talking to your friends before you wrote the book why is sport a thing so you've written about this in the book because it is basically play, right? But I was thinking about this because I think undeniably we lose our sense of play as we get older. And yeah. sport obviously started billions of years ago, probably not billions of years ago. I'm going to struggle here. But as long as as long as humans have been around. Exactly. Before humans have been around, yeah. Like and I imagine they had like way more pressing things to think about back then like not being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger so how has the industry of sport how is this a thing yeah well actually i mean a slight um tangent but they had a lot of free time the old hunter gatherers i think much more than we do or you know much more than most people did post-industrialization aside from hunting and gathering which was a few hours a day mm-hmm you could sort of lie around. And so I think maybe it was that free time, free hours in the day that made people think, should we do something else? And, you know, it was often like from mimicking the stuff that they had to do for survival. So hunting with an arrow or something, you throw an arrow that you're a kid, you imitate your parents throwing an arrow with a little dart and you, you make it a fun game with other kids and that becomes a sport. So I think maybe the, you know, the activities people were doing for survival would have then fed into you know doing them for play mm. and i think we do say that it's an it was an important thing to have kids learn early on how to do these things and so you have them mimic it and perhaps it's the case that you know the kids who are better who enjoy that playing more evolve to be better at the hunt and so we become a play a play-based people i think yeah because of that i think there's a lot of war and sport overlap isn't there i mean it was so often either sport would be used as sort of training for war or it would be seen as a distraction. I mean, a lot of things were like football was banned constantly throughout British history and a lot of European history because it was thought of as a distraction because everyone should be practicing archery and horse riding and things that could prepare you for war. So it was often seen as something useful in that sense. But yeah, I think it is the human instinct to play and then ability to organise as a team combined, which other animals don't really have. Lots of animals play, obviously, but then they don't decide to get together and play together in this organised way. I mean, there is a fascinating anecdote. I mean, there's a, a billion fascinating anecdotes in the book, but there's one particularly, sorry to go back to football, but about the origins of the beautiful game back in 1860, where Scotland are playing England and they outwit them by developing a novel tactic, which is passing the ball. Passing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so weird to think that it wasn't really obvious, but football used to be basically you you just dribbled it and you, you got the ball and you dribble it as far as you can, run with the ball up the pitch, up the pitch, and then until someone manages to get it off you and they dribble it in the other direction. And as you say, this match, Scotland came up with different positions so rather than everyone chase after the Mm. ball and try to get it you stand here and wait for someone to send it to you and then it morphed into the football we know today I think it would have been unrecognizable in 1850 
practically. But yeah, and Scotland won. And suddenly England went, oh, what the hell? We need to start doing that as well. And it became a much more interesting, interesting prospect. Did you find a lot of sports were like that? Have they changed sort of beyond recognition from from the research that you did? Did you find that? Good question. I think, yeah. Yeah, in fact, definitely. When you look at the origins of a sport like, let's say, lacrosse has a really interesting history. It's was invented and played for many hundreds of years by Native Americans. And they used to play with up to 100,000 players, in fact, according to the World Lacrosse Federation. So you have literally tens of thousands of people from different Native American tribes playing each other, and they'd play over many miles and many kilometers. And then it's obviously been adapted because games of 100,000 players taking up vast tracts of lands aren't feasible. But you still see the remnants of that, I believe, in lacrosse. I think women's and men's lacrosse as well are slightly different, but there's no proper boundary like you can take the ball outside of the boundary which is harks back to what it used to be I mean same with football if you look back at football over the centuries it there were no specific number of people playing you'd get dozens and dozens of people playing a game and things could be much more violent of course I think the only things in I think the only thing in wrestling in ancient wrestling that was banned was eye gouging and pretty much anything else goes and not as many people die of course American football if you look at the injury figures at the start of the 20th century and they really had to adapt the rules here Mm. it was multiple people would die from injuries playing american football every year which is when a few extra rules came in to say i've got to stop this so things like that you know wanting to preserve human life tend to change sports a little bit yeah i mean that all sounds quite gladiatorial (laughs) yeah (laughs) and terrifying I wondered if you could talk to me a little bit about cheating because we're we're pretty advanced these days in cheating practices, but it has, of course, always gone on. In ancient Greek times, I read in the book, wrestlers would eat five kilos of lamb a day and that was like their version of steroids, though I am a little bit sceptical about the efficiency of this. I think some ways of cheating don't actually work. Yeah, and I think that might have been an example of one of them. In fact, one method of cheating, which doesn't actually work, but which is one of my favourites, is corking a bat. So in baseball, there's a thing that you can do where you scrape out the inside of your bat and you replace it with cork. And the idea is that makes it lighter so Mm -hmm. you can get a bigger swing and hit the ball harder. Actually, it doesn't work because the fact that it's lighter means that you don't get the weight behind it. So there's no evidence it works. But, I mean, there's a story I just love so much when I found it. And it's of a baseball game where the main player, it's a baseball game. I think it was the Cleveland Indians Hmm. were playing and sometime in the 90s and The star player of the Cleveland Indians was accused of using a corked bat and he had indeed used a corked bat and the bat was confiscated mid-game and, you know, and the umpire said, we're going to check this bat afterwards and if it's corked, if you win, you forfeit the game, you know, you haven't, Mm. haven't achieved anything. So they knew that they had to not let this bat be checked. And then there's this incredible story of one of 
the guy, Albert Bell was the guy whose bat was corked and his teammate, Jason Grimsley, went to retrieve his confiscated bat. And he climbed up into the air vents of the stadium and he crawled around the air vents for sort of almost an hour, I think, with a sort of, I guess, a map in his head of where the cork bat would be, crawled around (laughs) desperately trying to drop down into the room where the bat was. At one point, he removed a ceiling tile and came face to face with a janitor who just looked up at him and was like, what on earth? And then just looked down again, I guess, just thinking, I'm not going to deal with this. And he found the bat eventually. He dropped down into this room, took the bat, replaced it with another non-corked bat and snuck away. And I, I just love that as the lengths that people will go to to cheat. And as you say, for something that doesn't even work. And also he completely screwed it up because he replaced it with a bat that belonged to another player and it had the other player's initials on it. So the umpire just looked at it and went, this isn't the one. Let's have it back, please. Ridiculous. There's another brilliant example in the book about the modern pentathlon. And I like like any normal person, I'm obsessed with, with the modern pentathlon because it's so utterly ridiculous. Yeah. And Hannah is going to love this fact. Back in the day, before it was banned as an illegal substance, all competitors drank alcohol before competing to steady their hands and nerves. You've got to for the pistol shooting. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't have to because they do it now and they're fine. It's They do something these days with their breath. It's to do with the like aerobic and anaerobic whatever they have to do like some special thing with their breath in order to get their adrenaline back down in order to shoot properly because uh, obviously you run really? and then you're like bam 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 oh, adrenaline whatever and then it's like oh shit now I've got to shoot something yeah, <laughs> yeah sort of shivering and yeah alcohol's a banned substance so you can't do that anymore I know it's a real it's a crying shame that's interesting about the breathing I wonder if that's the same thing you do when you sort of breathe into a paper bag if you have a panic attack and it's to yeah. um, get more carbon dioxide into your system but anyway you're right in the pentathlon it used to be absolutely standard to drink I think there was an Austrian athlete who drank sort of 10 beers before <laughs> the event and then just fired all the bullets into a mound next to the target Uh, and then fell unconscious so it was eventually banned and it was quite controversial and I think there's still there was a limit which was a bit like a drink driving limit so you know you could have a tiny bit of blood alcohol and in fact people did still once the limit was introduced have the maximum amount of beer that they could have in order to get that amount of blood alcohol just to steady their nerves a bit because otherwise, as you say, you're shaking from the previous running event. It's a lot. But yeah, it's not, a lot. not recommended with a gun in your hands. But the modern pentathlon is a lot. I've had some really yeah. interesting uh, thoughts about financial doping as well. I didn't, I didn't know about the banned swimsuit that you've written about, which is really interesting. Basically, there's this super duper swimming costume that like compacts the muscles and makes people more streamlined, so you can be super muscly, which obviously you need to be pretty strong to be a, a good swimmer. But then it like compacts them so that you're streamlined and aerodynamic and and all of the things that you know you'd want to be if you're moving at pace Mm. but then it's banned because it's financially it's out of reach to a lot of the the countries competing but then there's a hell of a lot of other things that are you know i mean arguably the entire success of team gb is because we throw a lot of money at it these days right 
Definitely. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things where you sort of work out where to draw the line and it's completely imperfect. Yeah, I think it was Speedo and the team that um, came up with this or that had this suit won about 90% of the races. So I think maybe when it happens in that unbalanced way, they say, okay, we've got to get rid of that. But yeah, you're right with things like cycling, which is so dependent on the equipment that you've got. It's not really fair. And that, of course, is why wealthy Western countries win you know, or outperform non-wealthy, non-Western countries in the vast majority of sports. The cost of training and everything like that and equipment. Yeah, it's not fair. Hey, sport isn't fair. I wanted to ask you a little bit about sound. I thought it was really interesting, the stuff about sound, particularly because of the pandemic. And then obviously for the first time, we were all watching sports with no sound. And then, you know, some Mm -hmm. places elected to, you know, pipe recorded cheering or whatever into the stadium so that it sounded like a normal a normal match normal game whatever but this is actually not a new thing is it there's there's been like sort of sound engineering going on in sport for for a while right yeah it's really interesting side of it and this is kind of what i think there's you know if you think you didn't like sport Mm. hey listen to a podcast with the i think bafta award-winning sound technician who did the last few grand slams for instance because it's and i think in the book we mention in rowing if you watch a rowing event you can hear the oars slap the water now in reality you would not be able to hear that because to film a rowing event, then there's, you know, helicopters above them. There's a huge amount of like crowd noise around them often. So the water slapping of the oars has to be added artificially. And I think in the 2012 Olympics, the sound recordist actually went in in the morning of the race. He went to like got himself a boat, found himself an oar and just recorded himself slapping the water with an oar. And that was the sounds that you were hearing when you see the boats you know, you see people rowing because you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't feel that same attachment. And the same at Wimbledon. I remember hearing yeah, an interview with the sound recordist at Wimbledon who says it's crucial when to dip the crowd noise and when to raise it for the tension. So mm. at really tense moments, you try to create this complete silence. But then you have to be so ready for the winning shot where suddenly there's a boom of cheers. So you've got to be completely ready to ride that up and suddenly boost the sound again. And you just have no idea all this stuff is happening behind the scenes. I think it's fascinating. Right. And it does it does make a difference, doesn't it? Because obviously I, I didn't know any of that stuff was happening. That's absolutely, you know, that that is news to me. But it really does make a difference when you watch sport without that level of sound. It's because it does really change it, doesn't it? It suddenly seems yeah. like... I don't it, like the magic is sort of lost in a way when you can just hear twenty two guys on the pitch going Oi, over it over it like yeah. it's just like it's just like watching your brothers down the park like it's just totally well it's it's I think it shows you how ridiculous sport is once you don't have the crowds that make sport a thing that make it its money and make it worth doing you think you realize it is just sort of. 22 men running around a pitch picking a ball to each other or two women hitting a ball between each other and you think god I can't believe I'm choosing to watch this but I agree but you know on the other hand there was an advantage to COVID and not having crowd noise and I know a lot of people are aware of this but referee decisions suddenly didn't go with the home side nearly as often really thought thought that's because of the psychological pressure that you subconsciously are under as a referee with the home team to make favorable decisions um yeah if you look at the card the card rates um so that's the benefit but it's definitely not the same 
practicing a game without noise. I think there was a game where they wanted to they wanted to add robots into the seats to generate crowd noise. I think maybe in Japan. Anyway, yeah, it wouldn't wouldn't be as fun, would it? Those Charlton games without the twelve <laughs> fans at the away matches. Sometimes very noisy. Sometimes very noisy fans. So noisy, actually. Yeah, you'd be amazed the noise that can be generated. Anna, this has been absolutely fascinating. I could talk to you about this book for probably several days, but we've all got lives to lead, so so I'll I'll crack on with this. Everything to play for, which is a fascinating book. There is so much in it that I think if you love a pub quiz, basically. You're going to love this book because the trivia, even if you don't love a pub quiz, if you love sport, if you don't, what I'm trying to say is there's universal appeal. <laughs> That's book. what we hope. It's not just for sports fans, I don't think. Everything to play for, the QI book of sports is out now, published by Faber. Can we follow you anywhere on the socials, Anna? You actually can't. I don't do the socials. You can follow James Harkin at James Harkin, my colleague who speaks for me in most things and you can follow <laughs> at no such thing which is the of course podcast. sorry podcast i've not even Twitter. mentioned that you are of course also part of the no such thing as a fish podcast but i stayed off so i didn't ever join social media at the start and now it really does feel too late to jump onto the bandwagon so i'd say you've missed the glory days <laughs> <laughs> i think that seems it's correct probably, it's probably not the best time to get involved no imagine if suddenly i went i'm gonna get on x Hmm. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. Well, Anna, thank you so much for joining me. It's been really interesting to chat. Thank you. Standard issue for all women.